morning once again. Please open your Bibles again to John chapter 2. All right. This is an article from the British newspaper, The Telegraph, dated September 5th, 2016. And you're going to get a kick out of this one. <laughs> Titled, Vicar Applies for Booze License for a Church Claiming Jesus Turned Wine to Turn Water into Wine for a Reason. It says, a heavy metal-loving vicar has applied for an alcohol license for his church, saying that Jesus, quote, turned water into wine for a reason. Father Tom Plant, who took over as vicar of St. Michael's Church in Camden, North London, in January of this year is currently waiting to hear if his application will be accepted. The vicar is in the process of converting the church into, quote, a live music venue, complete with a bar and a new stage, lighting and sound system, for bands to come and play to crowds of around 300 revelers. The reverend has had to reassure his loyal congregation, however, that he won't be building a, quote, mosh pit, <laughs> but that he was planning to open the church four nights a week for gigs, complete with bouncers at the door. <laughs> the vicar, a fan of U.S. rockers Nine Inch Nails, said he wanted to put the church on the, quote, cultural map but reassured his flock that the Gothic windows were too high to be smashed by revelers. <laughs> he said the 19th century church was in no danger of being wrecked by gig-goers, adding, we're not precious about the floor. St. Michael's is a glorious place, but it is faded glory. Speaking about, speaking about his application for alcohol license, he says, it's not a place to come and get drunk, but we're not a church that shies away from alcohol. We believe Jesus turned wine, water into wine for a reason. Locals, concern, locals raised concerns with the vicar at recent meetings with him over his plans, with some worried that the church would be turned into a boozy nighttime venue rather than a place of worship. He reassured this congregation that the music, the music heavy metal bands play would not work acoustically at his church, so it's more likely he would get in smaller acts. He added... It's part of our ongoing aim to put the church on the cultural map. We're trying to get, out, get ourselves more established in the artistic world, and we want to welcome people from all sorts of subcultures. We see it as an out, outreach, welcoming people in. Local Gary Cunningham said, the church is looking forward rather than backwards, and I applaud the new vicar for that. That's the end of the article. <laughs> so um, I, do, I do agree with the vicar that Jesus changed water into wine for a reason, but it's not to be a bartender. <laughs> so with that, uh, we will not be serving cocktails this morning. <laughs> okay, so obviously this article is referencing, referencing the first miracle Jesus performed in his earthly ministry, and that is the changing of water into wine at the wedding at Cana. So we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. <clears throat> Let's read it once again. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and his mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, 
draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew it knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed on him. All right. <clears throat> so there's been much controversy regarding this miracle of Jesus making wine. And it came from basically two directions. On one hand, the liberals of the 19th century who disliked any idea of Jesus performing miracles, uh, um, said Jesus obviously did not make wine, because if you made real wine, that would be a miracle. And they did not believe in miracles. So they denied Jesus ever made wine, because they were denying Jesus had the capacity to perform miracles. They would twist the scriptures and say things like this. The The people had been serving wine out of these water pots, which is not true. These water pots were used for ceremonial washing. Uh, so, so that people had been using these pots for wine, and when they were emptied, there was still a little wine in the bottom, so when they added the water, it gave sort of a wine taste to it. So Jesus pulled a little trickery on them. That's, that's what they were saying. The other direction comes from the conservatives who have a problem with Jesus making wine because, in their opinion, drinking wine was a sin. So you couldn't have Jesus making wine. He would be tempting people. Um, so the process with them goes, goes like this. It's a sin to drink wine. Jesus was sinless. Therefore, it would be impossible for him to make wine. He would be tempting people to sin. But however, the Bible says that drinking wine is not the sin. It's becoming drunk. That's the sin. And that being said, however, Paul does say in his scriptures that if, some, if you believe something to be sin and do it, therefore it becomes sin to you. So therefore, if you believe drinking alcohol is a sin, then it's probably something you shouldn't engage in then. All right, verses 1 through 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So we're told first that this wedding takes place in Cana of Galilee, which is roughly located about nine miles north of Nazareth. And it seems that Jesus, Mary, and the disciples were either friends of or possibly related to the couple being married. And we know by the size of the water pots, if you look down down in verse 6, there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. This is a large amount of water, and it was used for washing. When you went into a wedding, everybody had to be clean, ceremoniously clean. They had to go through a cleansing process, and that's what these water pots were for. So we know that there's a lot of water here, and there's a lot of washing, so there must be a lot of, a lot of people attending this wedding. Now, a few things we, we need to look at in these passages, and not necessarily in this order, but number one, what is the significance of this occurring at a wedding? Number two, why is the wine so central to this event? And what do the water pots represent? And finally, the interchange between Jesus and Mary. Okay, now the text begins, it says, on the third day. Now you may be wondering what the third day means there. 
Well, if you count back three days, if you go back into John chapter 1, which we don't have to do. In fact, we, we looked at this this morning in, in, in our Bible study. The first day was when Jesus called uh, Andrew and Peter to be his disciples. The second day was when Nathaniel and Philip were called. So this is, this is the third day after that. So um, some uh, theologians assume this third day means this is the third day of his ministry, the third day of Christ's earthly ministry. It's the third sequential day, in other words. All right, verse 3 now. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, when Mary says they have no wine, she's not saying this is a dry wedding. It's not a non-alcoholic wedding. They ran out of wine. Um, either, either sufficient wine was not acquired for the wedding or the people drank more than was expected. Okay, now, why was running out of wine a problem? Well, in ancient Israel, this is a major a major social embarrassment. Uh, in the ancient world, it was customary for a wedding feast to last upwards of seven days. There's a lot of food and wine being served in that time. And this was the burden of the bridegroom, to provide this to his guests at the wedding. Now, in the midst of this wedding, they run out of wine. Now, we might not think this is a big deal, just go get more wine, right? Well, they didn't have package stores then, so they couldn't just run out and get more. This was a major problem, acquiring more wine. Now, this causes two problems for the, for the groom. First, it's a ma- massive embarrassment for him, for the groom to run out of the refreshments that he was expected to provide. Uh, now, maybe he didn't prepare properly, or the guests were thirstier than expected, or more people came, but regardless, they ran out. The other negative is that, is that he would have just spent the previous year proving to his future father-in-law that he was capable of supporting his daughter his, as a wife. And here it is, their wedding day, and he fails to provide enough wine for the wedding. So it's an embarrassment to him. The second problem he faces is that in Jewish commun- ancient Jewish community, if provisions such as this failed, the groom and his family would, could face legal consequences, that they could actually face charges, criminal charges, for, run, for running out of refreshments. Uh, so when the supply of wine fails, it's more than just a social embarrassment. It could be legal problems for this bridegroom and his family. To further understand the significance of wine, we have to understand its significance in Israel. In other words, what, how is wine viewed in Jewish culture? Now, the word wine is used 140 times in the Bible, so the frequency of it appears, uh, it appears to imply importance. Throughout the Bible, we find numerous accounts of vineyards and wines, don't we? In the parables, we find parables about the vineyards and, and, and the, wine, uh, the wine dresser, etc. So wine was a significant part of, part of Jewish culture. And when the Bible talks about the fruit of the vine, it's not talking about grape juice. It's talking about fermented wine. Now, most of the time, the wine was used for special occasions, feasts, celebrations, such as Passover, which called for the use of real wine by divine sanction. Also, the wine industry was one of the two largest industries of Old Testament in Israel, and the other was oil, olive oil. So both wine and oil are used to represent spiritual fruits. Now, we know what the oil represents. It usually refers to the Holy Spirit, the anointing of oil, etc. And we'll, we'll get to the wine shortly. 
Now, the Jews had very strict laws against drunkenness. And for that reason, there were instances when the rabbis insisted that the wine be watered down to some extent to prevent people from falling into drunkenness. In fact, the language of verse 3, where it says they have no wine, the verb there actually means the people have drank too much wine. So there's probably people here who had too much wine and are drunk, if not borderline drunk. So, so the Jews saw wine as a gift from God. Uh, it was that which was, had the ability to make the heart joyful. It was a symbol of life, love, and celebration. It was the fruit of the vine, and the vine being in God's vineyard. God's vineyard, uh, vineyard is, is portrayed as God's kingdom in Scripture. The wine would symbolize the abundant blessings of God, a necessary part of a wedding feast if, if you're, you're a practicing Jew. So it was symbolic of God's giving life to man. <clears throat> so here comes Jesus to the feast now. They've run out of wine, and some of the people had too much wine. And what, we, what would we expect Jesus to do? Well, we might think this was a perfect opportunity for him to chasten the people about consuming too much wine. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he makes even more wine. And by those six water pots, there's adds up to roughly about 150 to 180 gallons of more wine he's going to make. So Mary's statement to Jesus now about not having wine the fact that she makes this statement brings some questions to mind. Jesus had not performed a miracle up to this point. So why was she asking this question then? Did she assume he had the ability to perform miracles? After all, she didn't know her baby was not normal, not a normal child. <clears throat> now on the surface, it seems her request is almost profane, that asking Jesus to make wine for a party seems a bit undignified for him. However, it does seem Mary was confident Jesus would know how to solve this problem. Now, verse 4, Jesus' response to Mary is very interesting. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus' response is actually an idiomatic phrase in Hebrew, meaning, as, it, as it's translated, how does it concern me? In the original Greek, it says, it says woman, how does this by you concern me. So it's difficult to understand without being translated. But what does this have to do with him? He's saying his hour has not yet come. Now what does, the, what does his hour have to do with making wine for this wedding? And we'll see that shortly. Um, the fact that he calls her a woman, now we may think that's kind of harsh in our modern society. It's like you know, a cab driver in New York saying, where to, lady, right? But he's actually not saying that. It's actually a term of respect. That means like madam or ma'am. So he's not, he's not being mean to her in any way. However, there are a few points we need to look at regarding his use of the word woman. Number one, he does not call her mother, if you notice that. And the reason for that is that he is no longer, he's not under her authority. He's under the father's authority. And by acknowledging her as mother implies that she would have some authority over him, but he's not under her authority. Now, since the father had already predetermined Jesus' agenda, Mary's request is somewhat appropriate because she's trying to tell him what to do. In other words, the father is the only one that tells him what to do. 
<clears throat> so this statement establishes that Mary, even as his physical mother, has no authority over him, destroying any belief that urges us to pray to Mary to intercede for us with Christ. And we pray directly to Christ. All right. Now, when Jesus states that his hour has not yet come, now Jesus says this many times in Scripture, doesn't he? His hour has not yet come. Now, we know that his hour is when he goes to the cross. <clears throat> so we might ask, what does this have to do with wine? And we'll see that when we get to the, um, when we look at the wedding and the, the, uh, the wine symbolism. Verse 5, now Mary says, his mother said in verse 5 to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, isn't that a great statement? It's something we should all be following, right? Um, I think of the Nike ad, right? Just do it, right? Don't ask questions, just do it. <clears throat> now, by this simple statement, Mary delivers one of the best sermons in the Bible. Uh, whatever he says, do it. Now, even though we may think her request might be superficial about making wine, she certainly does seem to have faith in him that he can solve this problem. Now, verses 6 and 7 now. Now, there, were set, there are six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, we get a clue here as to why Jesus performed this miracle at this wedding. If you've ever, ever seen water pots in the Middle East, they're usually made out of clay, out of mud that's been formed into a pot and dried. But that's not, these pots are made out of stone. And the reason these pots are made out of stone is that you wanted clean water when you did your purification, purification rites. You didn't want water that had bits of mud and dirt mixed into it. So you, didn't, you wouldn't use the regular water pots. You'd use these, these stone pots because they didn't make mud. <clears throat> so these pots were only used for the rituals of the Jews at purification. Now, as we said, this is probably a big wedding, and every Jew that attends this wedding had to go through this washing. They had to wash their feet, their hands. They had to be ceremoniously clean. And keep that in mind when we get to look at the wedding, about that people who attend the wedding must be clean. Think about that with regards to the marriage supper of the Lamb, what that's going to mean. <clears throat> now, verse 8. And Jesus said to them, draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. Jesus commands the, the um, servants to first fill the pots, right? To the brim, he says. And he commands them then to draw some out and take it to the governor of the feast. Now, the governor of the feast is it's like, he's like the head waiter. He's in charge of making sure everything operates properly at this wedding. And he would know what food and what wine was provided for this wedding. Now, verse 9 and 10 now. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So he's shocked at this wine. He's never tasted wine like this before. <clears throat> so the servants take it to him, and his comments to the bridegroom are, are interesting. Now he says uh, in verse... Uh, Let's see, verse, at verse 10. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. 
Now, the practice was to put out the good wine first when people were alert and could tell the difference between good and bad wine. So they'd fill up on the good wine, and then when their senses get a little dulled, then you put out the poor stuff, and they won't know the difference. But he says, you've, you, you've, you've kept the best till last. <clears throat> All right. So let's look at what the water pots represent now. <clears throat> okay. All right. Now there's two signs being conveyed by these water pots. Number one, when the water is changed into wine in this pot that was used for ceremonial washing, Jesus is stating that the method of cleansing has changed, that the water that was previously used to cleanse is now cleansed by the wine, which is his blood. That's why we use grape juice during our communion service, because it represents his blood. So his blood has replaced the, wa- the water that was in the ceremonial washing of for sin. His, his wine replaces it. All right. Now, we, we, we remember what we said that uh, wine represents life, joy, and celebration to the Jews. It's the new wine and the new life of the kingdom that he's bringing. The joy, the celebration conveyed through his blood. <clears throat> and, and the prophet Joel says, And when the kingdom comes, the prophet Joel says, And in that day the mountains will drip with sweet wine, and the hills will flow with milk, and all the blocks of Judah will flow with water, and the spring will go out from the house of the Lord. And Jeremiah says, They will come and shout for joy in the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain and the new wine and the oil. They will never languish again. Now number two regarding these pots. So, so number one, it represents a changing of, of how sins are, are cleansed. His blood is now replaces the, the, the baptisms, the washings. Number two, these stone pots were designed to carry water. They were never meant to carry wine. <clears throat> there were obviously empty wineskins at this wedding because they've been drinking wine, so the wine would have had to been transported in wineskins. And there wouldn't be any issue with the wineskins bursting if Jesus instead selected the wineskins as opposed to the water pots because the fermentation would have already occurred. So why does he choose these water pots? Well, in a number of phrases in the scripture, men and women are, are called vessels. Paul says in Romans 9, Has not the power potter over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had before prepared unto glory? even us whom he has called. And he goes on and says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and 7, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So we are earthen vessels. Now, what are some characteristics of Think of, think of those clay pots. They're fragile, right? They break easily. Um, they're weak, and every vessel is filled with something. So every, every person is filled with something, and that either being light or darkness. <clears throat> there's, no, there's no empty 
empty vessels in mankind. So these water pots also represent those who are being saved. Just as those stone pots were never designed to carry wine, um, the bodies of the believers were never designed to carry the Holy Spirit. They're incompatible, the bodies of the flesh. And the spirit is spirit. The two are incompatible. That's why Jesus refers to the wineskins. Remember, if you remember last week when Henry preached about the, um, the wineskin, about when they f- f- put new wine into the new wineskin, because the wine ferments, it expands, the new wineskin can stretch. Where the old ones that had the old wine have stretched out as, max, as far as they can go, and when the new wine ferments, it's going to burst it like a balloon. And that's what he, he's saying, that our bodies were never meant to contain the Holy Spirit. And this is why believers, when, when, when the end comes in, uh, at the marriage supper, of the, when, when, when we are resurrected, we get new bodies, don't we? New spiritual bodies to match the spiritual change that has occurred within us. All right. Okay, so, so actually these stone pots have much in common with the wineskins. Both are vessels, neither of which was meant to carry the new wine or the new life. Yet the water which they hold is suddenly and mysteriously changed, isn't it? To wine. So a fundamental and complete change has occurred within these stone water pots. Now the water pot had no role in this transformation, neither did the water. But yet it is a new creation. It's changed internally. Stone was never meant to hold the new wine. And notice they were filled to the brim, too. There's no skimping here, right? Christ fills his people to the brim with his spirit. There's no halfway. All right. Let's see here. Okay, now, as I said, remember what he spoke about the wineskins. This is why the saved will receive the new spiritual bodies in the future. Now, the new wine is the new life, and everything pertaining to it, including the Holy Spirit. In, in our language, we have a term for alcoholic beverages, and it's usually spirits. Everybody heard that term used before? Well, there's a reason that it was, it was used, and that is because we understand the fermentation process today, but back in ancient times, they didn't understand it. So when the grape juice or fruit juice turned into an alcoholic beverage, they thought there was a spirit inside it converting it, that the spirit converted the inside of this um, juice and transformed it. And and it's interesting that it it reflects also the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit changes us inside, converts us inside into into a new creation, just as the wine changes. Now, this idea of new wine, in, um, in Acts chapter 2, 12, when the um, disciples began speaking in tongues, uh, various foreign languages that they never could speak before, Acts two twelve and 13 say, And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What does this mean? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. So they thought they were drunk, in other words. But Peter replies to them in verse 15 and says, For these are not drunken, as you have supposed, since it is the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
and on my servants and on my, and on my handmaidings, I will pour out in those days my spirit and they shall prophesy. So they were filled with new wine, but it was not physical wine. It was the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> All right. So this is the new wine, and the new wine continues to ferment, doesn't it? When we get the spirit, it continues to grow. Just, just like fermentation in wine, it continues to grow. And the spirit inside of us, our, these vessels, continues to grow and expand, expand within us. <clears throat> okay. And as conveyed by the head waiter, this wine is like nothing else he's ever tasted, right? It's like nothing the world can offer. What Jesus Christ offers is nothing. It's, the world cannot even compare to what he offers in this new wine, this new life. <clears throat> and what was the result of this miracle? In verse 11, the beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed on him. So it caused his disciples to believe on him. Now, was their belief perfect? No. They have stumbled many times, don't they? And in fact, it seems their faith is shallow at times. But it does say that this did cause them to believe on him. Now, Jesus' reply to Mary in verse 4. Remember, we said, what does this have, what does this have to uh, concern? What does, how does this concern me? <clears throat> What Jesus is saying is that his hour has not yet come. And it refers to the fact that the hour of the real cleansing has not yet come, and that is his death on the cross. The hour when the blood would replace the water had not arrived. So with Mary's statement that they have no wine, Jesus is using this as a reference for the fact that it was not yet time for him to give his blood as the washing, as the ultimate washing for sin. And this wine would convert his people fully, up to the brim, as, as the water pots were. His spirit will, will replace what was formerly there and continues to expand within them. So the redemption of Christ is conveyed in this first, very first miracle. It sets the tone and the purpose of his coming. You might say it's his keynote miracle. He came to cleanse for sin, period. <clears throat> so what's our takeaway message here? Well, there are potentially a number of them, as we've covered this morning. We've seen the purpose of his coming, number one, that he came to provide the ultimate uh, cleansing for sin, and uh, that the blood of animals and ceremonial washings were now obsolete. <clears throat> and, and as he says, uh, as, as the scripture says, the new wine is better than the old wine. There's one statement that really stands out here, I believe, and that is Mary in, chapter, in verse 5. And I think this is something we all need to think about. Whatever he says to you, do it. It's a very simple statement. Yet we have trouble obeying it, don't we? And ask yourself, why, why, why do we find it so hard to obey sometimes? Well, the problem is we get ourselves mixed up into it. Our desires get mixed up in with what should be Christ's commands and causes us to be slow at times to obey or to not obey at all, right? Think of Jonah, right? When Jonah was commanded by God to go to the Ninevites, he dragged his feet. He didn't want to go. 
he was commanded to go, though. And his response should have been just to go. But he did everything in his power to prevent, to prevent himself from going, and God made him go. Eventually, he did go. <laughs> so obedience is key to the Christian walk. Now, we, ask, we need to ask, what must pre- precede this obedience? Number one, subjection. We are not our own, and we were bought with a price. And he has this right by his redemption that he paid the price of our sin for us. Um, our will must be subject to his. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And that needs to be our motto. He needs to be more and more in our life, and our desires less and less. Number two is listening for his voice. We need to listen for that still, quiet voice within us, which is his spirit prodding us to move in a certain direction. Now, how can we be sure this voice is not is the spirit of God and not our own desires? Well, everything he directs will be in accordance with his word. And, of course, we should be in much prayer during this time that he would reveal his will. <clears throat> our, our reply should be, as Samuel stated in 1 Samuel 3, 9, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. The more, and the more we obey, the more we will know his will. There's a saying among, um, in, in, in the fine art world that by copying perpetually a master painter's work, one can recognize his touch unerringly. So the, the, the more we obey, the more we know his will. Number three, a determination to trust him. It demands courage to commit ourselves blindly to another, doesn't it? We want to maintain control of our lives, our situations, and to put our trust blindly into another is a big step. Uh, Courage is needed when we step outside of our comfort zones. Um, Standing up here is not easy, let me tell you. (laughs) Uh, So so how how can we bring ourselves to such abandonment? Only by remembering that Christ cannot lead us wrong. He will never lead us wrong. The world will lead us wrong, but Christ will never lead us wrong. Now, what this obedience involves, number one, it is contrary to questioning. Uh, We should never question his motivation or his reasons. We should never get into a debate or bargaining with God. Um, Number two, it is contrary to delay. Think of Jonah again. Delay is obedience. Uh, Delay is disobedience, I should say. Um, Okay, now think about a few weeks ago we studied in Matthew about the man that came to Jesus and said, I will follow, I will follow you, but, but um, allow me to bury my father first, remember? Well, he was delaying, delaying uh, serving Christ. Now, often we dare not say, I will not. That's too blatant, right? But it's easier to say, well, I will, but not now, right? Now, this may quiet our conscience with the idea that this is not an out-and-out refusal, but it is. It's putting ourselves first. All right. Number three, it is contrary to consideration of cost, that there's a cost to serving Christ. Um, It may be time. It may be money. It may be people's opinion of us. It may be social status, and the list goes on and on. Uh, We need to settle with ourselves that we cannot follow Christ without a cost. If any man will come after me, let him take up his cross, Christ said. 
So, so there's a sacrifice to be made. Number four, obedience should be cheerful. It is said the Lord hates that which is forced because then it is more like paying a tax than an offering. <clears throat> a tax is compelled, right? An offering is not. So what would follow this obedience if we follow it? Number one, it prevents the hardness of our hearts. Hardness is, is the certain result of refusal. Number two, it proves that we are Christ's. Good works are the fruit of salvation. Number three, it is the way of success, for he has promised much blessing to those who are obedient. In the words of Samuel, it is better to obey than, than for sacrifice. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, blessed are those who hear the word and obey it. So, um, let's close with Mary's own words. Whatever he says to you, do it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning in prayer, Lord, may we take to heart Mary's words. Uh, Mary did not say, um, whatever he says to you, do it if you agree with it. She didn't say, whatever he says to you, do it if you like it or if you're comfortable with it. Um, he, well, she simply said, whatever he says, do it. And Lord, give us the strength, give us the, um, the, the, the spirit, Lord, to grow in you like, like the new wine, Lord, and the new wineskin that we, the spirit might expand within us and cause us to obey your commands, Lord, and to grow in you, uh, to step out of our comfort zones and to, uh, to obey, obey your commands, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.